Welcome to episode 102 of this Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book called Engineering Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. And through this podcast, Myself and my co-host, Chris Knutson, try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. Now, here's a short preview of this episode, during which I'll be speaking with Jennifer Sloan Ziegler on policy and its importance in civil engineering. I hate to say it, but kind of too bad. Do you want to spend the rest of your career complaining that somebody who doesn't know anything about engineering is making decisions? Or would you rather suck it up and get involved and try to change that? My co-host Chris and I both believe that in order to be the best civil engineer you can be, you must consistently get better. Get better at your craft, your people skills, and as a leader. And that's why we publish this free podcast to help you do just that. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jennifer, a project engineer focusing on water resources, specifically watershed management and coastal restoration. I'll be asking her to talk about why policy is so important to her as a civil engineer and to talk about how civil engineers in general can get more involved. Jennifer Sloan Ziegler works on bridging the gap between engineering and policy. Her work is extremely interdisciplinary and she routinely works with scientists, engineers, managers, economists, lawyers, political scientists, and researchers. Jennifer is a registered professional engineer in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Prior to her current firm, Wagoner, Jennifer worked for the Memphis District of the Army Corps of Engineers, was a Dean John A. Knauss Marine Policy Fellow in the U.S. Senate, and was a lecturer at Mississippi State University. She's also very active in ASCE. She serves on the Mississippi Section Executive Board, the Environmental and Water Resources Institute Governing Board, the Committee on Younger Members, and several other committees. Now, before we get started, as I said earlier, this is a free show, and our sponsors help us to keep the show free for our listeners, so please support them. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today's episode by asking you, Have you been looking for a way to advance your engineering career? Stick around later for my exam prep tips and tricks. I'll be sharing info on where to find the best resources to prepare you for your licensure exam, including an exclusive 20% discount available only to our listeners. Thanks to our sponsor, PPI. You won't want to miss it. I also want to mention quickly here that at the Engineering Management Institute, one of the services that we started providing is custom-built professional development programs focused mostly on management and leadership for engineering firms of any size. We cater to different sizes. We have clients of 10 engineers and then clients of well over 1,000 engineers in their firm because, quite frankly, sending your engineers to a CAN training doesn't always give you the best ROI because they don't have time to implement those new skills when they come back to the job. So we provide custom-built training that allows them to incrementally improve their skill sets over time and generate a much higher ROI. If you're interested in that, feel free to reach out to me, a Fasano at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, or call our offices at 
857-238-8572384. Now it's time to dive into our civil engineering conversation of the week. Let's do it. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it is my pleasure to welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, Dr. Jennifer Sloan Ziegler. I say doctor because she asked me not to, but Jennifer is a, a multi-talented civil engineer. She's also the president-elect of the ASCE Mississippi section, and I had the chance to meet her a few months ago out in Minnesota. Jennifer, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about a topic that many civil engineers should be more aware of, but unfortunately they're not, which is policy. But before we do that, Jennifer, I of course read your bio for the listeners, but just in your own words, give the listeners a little bit of a, an understanding of what you do on a day-to-day basis, which is many things, but in terms of your civil engineering responsibilities. So I'm a project engineer for a small private company in Jackson, Mississippi called Wagner Engineering. I've been there for about three years. But I mostly do water resources work, and I focus on watersheds and coastal areas, which actually is very political. It's not something that people usually think of when they think of infrastructure. But before that, I actually got the pleasure of working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for two different senators, actually, through two different fellowship programs. And we're going to dive into that because that's a very important aspect, of course, of why I asked Jennifer to come on the podcast so we can hear about that experience. But first of all, Jennifer, just to start us off, tell us why engineers need to be involved in policy at all. A lot of the decisions that are made and a lot of the regulations that we have to follow as engineers are actually created and drafted by people that don't have a technical background. I found that when I was on Capitol Hill the last time, which was in 2014, that I was one of two engineers total that worked on Capitol Hill, not just in the Senate, but on the House side as well. And when you consider that we have 535 members, voting members of Congress, and they all have multiple people on their staff, that number is surprisingly low. And when you look at individual states and the people that make decisions on the state level as well, there are very, very few engineers. We have the technical expertise, but we're being told by people that don't have technical expertise, what we need to do. So it makes it kind of difficult sometimes because they'll tell us something to do that's not practical or it's old school. And that's one of the things, that's one of the disconnects that we as engineers have. And we need to work to start establishing relationships with the people that make decisions instead of complaining about the fact that the law requires us to meet certain effluent criteria that's completely unrealistic. Why don't we start building relationships with the policymakers and actually being available to advise them on what actually can happen? It makes sense when you say it like that. But again, a lot of civil engineers, I think, don't even understand what policy is and how it works, especially those that are younger or less experienced. But just to be clear, Jennifer, so everyone understands, when you say you were on the Hill, just explain what that means, what your role was, how you got there, just for those that aren't familiar with what that might mean. The first time I was on Capitol Hill, that's kind of the Hill is what we call Congress for people that have worked there. I was actually a Dorman Blaine Congressional Fellow from Mississippi State University, and I had the pleasure of working in Senator Thad Cochran's office and I didn't really do a lot of engineering there. I was in undergrad at the time, 
But then I actually was a Dean John A. Knauss Marine Policy Fellow, which is a NOAA Sea Grant program. And I worked in Senator Maria Cantwell's staff as a policy advisor for her through through NOAA. I was recognized as an, I hesitate to call myself an expert, but I guess I was technically an expert environment in, in marine aspects. My day-to-day when I worked for either of the senators was basically respond to anything that they needed. If a, a bill came on the floor and they needed to vote and it fell into my portfolio, which was natural resources, the Army Corps, the Department of Interior and Marine Policy, then I was the one who was responsible for gathering up data and then trying to tell her, here are the things that you need to consider when you're voting. Here are the pros of the bill. Here are the cons of the bill. Because they can't, they rely on their staff to tell them these things. But I also worked on drafting legislation, which was fun. That's interesting. Yeah, sure, for an engineer. Yeah, it, it was very interesting. And actually, now I actually just got an email from the vice president of my company for a project that I'm working on. He was like, here, look at CFR, which is the Code of Federal Regulations. This new thing came out. It's, it's affecting this project that we're working on. Can you interpret it and tell us kind of what we need to do differently or if we're good to go on this project? So Jennifer, tell me more about this position. Is this something that's like a government employee? Is it a volunteer? Is it, how does it work and how did it come about? The Canals program? Just you on the Hill. And Jen, I don't know what position it was, but I mean, are these, you said there's only a few engineers on the Hill. Is this like a position where a political leader has the ability to bring experts in or how does that work at all? So I was actually a staffer. If you ever go to the Hill and visit representative or a senator, they have staff that work directly for them that are experts in certain matters that can help educate the senator or the representative on those issues. And that's what I was. Most of the time, they are paid for through the congressional budget. So each senator or representative has their own budget, and they get to decide how they want to hire people to work for them. My position was a little bit different because I was paid through the NOAA Sea Grant program, but I was considered a full-time staffer on staff. So I acted the same as if I had been paid through the senator's staffing budget or not. So it was a full-time job. It was a full-time job. And it was, it was actually more than a full-time job. There were multiple, multiple times when I worked 80 to 100 hours a week. Throughout all of the Senate and Congress, at the time you did that, there was only one other engineer that was doing what you were doing? There was only one other engineer that I could find. And I think ASE has numbers. ASE likes to keep track of those. And so those numbers fluctuate, but there are very, very few engineers who work in public policy and politics. Let me ask you this question. You said earlier that pretty much everything we do as engineers is in some way driven by policy because we need to follow guidelines and those guidelines are typically created through these different policies and legislation. So I'm just curious as to why these politicians or why they're not consulting engineers when they create these policies if they're driving what we do. That's a really good question. And I think that there are multiple answers. So if you were to actually, when you ask me, I'm going to give an answer. And when you ask um, a senator or representative or any of their staff, they'll probably give you a different one. From my experience, the easiest answer is to say it's just a lack of relationships. When you work on the Hill, I found that people want to know you because I feel like people always want to ask 
you for something. They want you to authorize their project or they want you to appropriate money for their project. And so sometimes it's hard to build relationships or be able to trust relationships with people without them actually wanting something. So it's hard to establish that trust relationship. And we as engineers really don't do a great job of trying to establish that relationship with our representatives and our senators. And then the other side of that is when I said that I worked a lot of hours, I mean that I worked a ton of hours. And sometimes I'd be up, you know, if you ever watch C-SPAN, which is a snooze fest, I'm sure you guys think I do too sometimes. But if you ever watch it, you see that these things happen. Some of these major votes happen at two or three o'clock in the morning. Well, as a staffer, if the bill on the floor is under your portfolio, you have to be there. If you don't have a pre-established relationship with an engineer and somebody throws in an amendment that deals with water resources infrastructure at 2.30 in the morning and you don't have a relationship, who do you call? The answer is you don't call anybody because you don't know who you can trust and you don't want to call a random stranger at 2.30 in the morning. But also things move really, really quickly. So even if it's not 2.30 in the morning, sometimes you're given 10 or 15 minutes in order to make a call about an amendment to legislation and whether or not it's a good call to include that on the in the bill for a vote. And if you don't have a pre-established relationship with somebody who knows what they're talking about, you're just going to make the best call that you can. So I think it kind of weighs on us to go ahead and relationships are important. And I think it's, it's on us to try to go ahead and establish those relationships. It sounds to me like what you're saying ultimately is if we want these political leaders, these policymakers to listen to us more, we got to develop relationships with them. 100%. And we have another episode that we did previously all about the ASCE legislative fly-in, which we can certainly link to in the show notes for this episode, which will talk maybe more about the details of that event, which can help to build relationships just like Jennifer's referring to here. But I guess one of the next questions, if we're going down this road, Jennifer, is you mentioned that most of these staffers aren't technical. You mentioned that you only knew of another engineer and yourself in terms of engineers that were there. That would pose a challenge, I would think, in terms of communicating with them effectively. So how will that work or how can we get around that? That's a really great point, actually. When I worked on the Hill and I wanted to take something to my boss, I would always ask myself, can I explain this to a kindergartner or can I explain this to a five-year-old? They're not stupid by any stretch of the imagination, but they are uneducated in engineering terms. And if you can't communicate with them on a very, very basic level, then they are probably not going to understand what you're talking about. So when I was in D.C., Last, the Oso mudslide happened in Washington state. I don't know if you remember the Oso mudslide, but it was pretty devastating. And even though soils and geotech is not my expertise, as the only engineer on staff, I was really responsible for the technical aspect of that for the senator. And I remember trying to explain to the senator one of the big problems. There are multiple problems with the Oso mudslide, but One of the big problems is that you had a permeable layer of soil on top of an impermeable layer of soil, and then you had a lot of rain. And so I had to explain to the senator, you know, why this is bad and why it helped lead to the mudslide. She's not dumb, but do you think she understands what permeable is? All right. 
So just even thinking about changing the big words that we use every day makes a big difference. When you say permeable, they're like, oh, I don't know what that is. And some people, most people, even non-politicians don't want to say, wait, wait, hold on. I don't understand what you just said. Can you back up and explain that again? But if you're cognizant and you say water doesn't go through it, it's like how water doesn't escape your bathtub or doesn't go through the ceramic. You know, they start to understand things like that. I do understand that there are people that really have a hard time breaking it down. And that's where we as engineers can partner together and you can create teams that have the technical experts, but then they also have people on the team that can break it down and can explain it to a five-year-old and can really communicate well. Yeah, I think that's a great rule of thumb and a really great takeaway about being able to explain the concept to a kindergartner and not just in terms of policy, but I remember when I was practicing as a civil engineer, I went to tons of planning board and zoning board meetings for our projects. And the same applies there. I mean, you have these town boards that are just made up of local citizens that really have no understanding of the technical breakdown of these projects, yet you're there presenting to them on why this development is so great or this new project or redevelopment project is so great. And they don't understand why you need this big pond in the middle of the development. So I think that this idea of, can I explain this to a kindergartner, is important for you as an engineer in any regard. I mean, policy definitely because of the examples that Jennifer gave, but I think just in general, it can make you really a better engineer and communicator overall, if you think about that. I mean, I have young kids myself and they're certainly smart, but there'll be times when I'm talking and they'll be like, you know, I don't, what does that word mean? It's like that one word that, I could have done a better job of, like Jennifer says, with the word permeable, let's say, which can really help you to just get overall better communication, better quality out of your conversation. So that's a good one, Jennifer. Thanks. Before I went to DC, I taught for a semester at a university. And one of the things that I would tell my students is you can be the best engineer in the world. You can be the next Einstein. But if you cannot communicate, if you cannot share your ideas so that other people can understand them, then it doesn't matter how smart you are. Your ideas are never going to be put into practice. I agree with that. I mean, I think it's one of the biggest challenges of big thinkers is that you can have all these ideas, then you don't implement them. And sometimes with engineers, you get the flip side where you get so into the details that you never bring anything to the table. So I think it's all about a good balance. And I love this idea of teaching and thinking about explaining it to kids. It's just a way to just try to make it easier. I think one of the challenges in the world we live in is improving, right? Because there's so much content out there today. Like Jennifer and I are going to talk here on this episode probably for 30 minutes or so, and you might be listening on your commute, but then you get to work, you get out of your car, and what are you going to remember from the episode that you can actually use right away? And I think something like this, try to explain things to people like they're kindergartners in a sense could be very powerful. So that is really good advice. So moving forward, Jennifer, what if there's civil engineers out there saying, all this makes sense to me. We have to get involved with policy. We got to communicate better. We need to be able to explain things better. But I just hate politics. Well, I hate politics too. Let's be honest. There's a difference in politics and policy. First of all, politics is, I like to think of politics as the ugly side and policy as the, the drivers. There's that. But I hate to say it, but kind of too bad. Do you want to spend the rest of your career complaining that somebody who doesn't know anything about engineering is making decisions? Or would you rather 
suck it up and get involved and try to change that. And that's where things like the legislative fly-in or key contacts or state advocacy captains through ASCE are so great. Right now, I'm a key contact for the state of Mississippi, and the uh, state advocacy captain, Jacob Forrester, and I, we know each other quite well, and we both kind of enjoy the, the policy side of it, not the politics side of it, actually. We were talking about that last night over some drinks, and we know some great engineers. Jacob and I are both going to be the first to tell you there are so many people in this state that are so much better suited for the technological side. They know so much more than we do. And that's where your team really comes into play. So just because you don't like policy or just because you don't like politics, that doesn't matter. I mean, I don't like paying my bills, but I still have to do it because I don't want to be homeless. My dogs like to eat, surprisingly. So you just kind of have to suck it up and do it. Being an adult is kind of about, includes doing things you don't want to do. I think it's twofold. I think one side of this is that people don't understand the importance of policy. Part of the reason we're doing this episode, right, is because a lot of civil engineers out there are doing their jobs, but not understanding where the guidelines that they're following come from, other than a binder or a website that they just have to follow. So I think that's one side of it. And then I think, like you said, if you then do know about it, the next step is you have to take action. And the thing that I can't stand the most is when people complain about things, but they're not doing anything to make changes, right? Like, you can complain about all the politicians you want, but if you're sitting there on your couch and you're not out there voting or taking a stand one way or the other, then you're not, then you're also part to blame. And that could go along the lines of anything, not just politics. If your boss tells you that you're not presenting effectively in your presentations, you just complain instead of going to a Toastmasters course or reading a book on public speaking and trying to get better, then again, don't complain. I agree. I think it's a two-part problem. And I think that Jennifer's hit on both sides of it here is that okay, now that you know policy is important, don't say, okay, great, there's a thousands of other engineers listening to this episode, they'll probably go do something. That's just not a good approach. There's easy ways to get involved. Organizations like ASCE do make it easy with some of these events that they have that Jennifer mentioned and that we'll link to in this episode and in the show notes of this episode. But that's just not a good, we can't use it as an excuse because we're not going to drive change. And that's definitely one of the reasons that I really wanted to get Jennifer on just to talk about this because. She's passionate about it, which kind of leads me to my next question, Jennifer, is how come you left the Hill? I left the Hill because I'm an engineer and I love engineering. And when I was on the Hill, I didn't have my professional engineering license. If you're a PE or if you're working on your PE, I think everybody knows that you can uh, be mentored by somebody to get your hours, but it takes twice as long. And I think I already mentioned that I worked over 80 hours a week most of the time on the Hill. So I couldn't quite figure out how to get the mentoring hours in that I needed in order to get my PE. And I think that having a PE is extremely important. That's actually another point that I kind of wanted to make. When I went on the Hill and I got business cards, I just, you know, I just put Jennifer Sloan Ziegler on them. I didn't put, I didn't put anything else behind it. And they were like, oh, well, you have your PhD. You need to put that because the Hill sees a PhD and they think that, you know, what you're talking about, even though you probably may not. And they don't really know what a PE is. They don't know that a PE, in my opinion, a professional engineering license, is more powerful than a PhD. It means more. It speaks to a lot. And I really wanted that PE, even though nobody else on the Hill really understood what it was or why I wanted it or even how to get it. It's really important. 
You're right. I mean, listen, credibility means all means everything in our industry, right? People look for that credibility. They look for that expertise and having it in an area like the Hill, I think can obviously, as we're talking about here, can really make some monumental impact. So when you left the Hill, you went to the Corps of Engineers for a little while, correct? I did. I went to the Memphis District of the Corps and it was a really great learning experience, but it just didn't really fit my personality for multiple reasons which is perfectly fine. If you are a student or a young engineer listening to the podcast, I, I would like to definitely encourage you if you're working somewhere and you kind of feel like, I don't really feel like this is a good fit for me. That's fine. It's your career. You need to change it. You need to do what's right for you. I'm not saying job hop every year. I'm saying do what you need to do to find where you fit. Absolutely. I just want to just to jump on that real quick because I think it's super important especially when you're younger as a civil engineer, that's your opportunity. Because the challenge with civil engineering is that there's so many different disciplines and so many different things you can do. And your education in civil engineering doesn't bind you to geotech or land development or stormwater because you can really graduate and then take any or try any one of those. And so when you're younger, that's the time to maybe try a couple different things out, whether it's within one company, within one organization, or a couple of different ones. And so definitely take Jennifer's advice there and try different things out. And like Jennifer said, for her, she just felt that it wasn't working with her personality and with her goals. And eventually you moved into consulting, which is where you are today, correct? Right. It is where I am today. And it's probably where I'll say for a while, it just fits me a lot better. I do have to say I miss the hill. I would love to go back. So, you know, if you work on Capitol Hill and you're looking for a staffer, hit me up. But I would love to go back. But I also miss academia because I think it's really important to um, translate the things that we have learned and give that to future generations. I'll work in consulting for a while. I'm not sure how long. I have no plans to leave anytime soon. Boss, if you're listening, I have no plans to leave anytime soon. But I do eventually plan on um, going back to academia, maybe when I retire, maybe before then, if I like hit the jackpot, you never know. I know from when we spoke that you like to do a lot of things and you work quite a bit. And I think just because as we could tell from this episode, you're very passionate about what you do. That's why you've gotten very involved in what you do. And one of the other things that I want to bring up just here as we get towards the end of this segment, and we're going to stick with Jennifer in a minute and go to the, the civil engineering hot seat segment so we can pepper her on a couple of questions about her professional development. But one of the things that I want to ask you before we get into that is just to talk a little bit about being a female in the world of civil engineering. And my wife is a civil engineer as well. She's a geotechnical engineer. So I know a little bit about this and having conversations with her. But I do work with a lot of engineering companies and I've been on this doing this podcast for a while. And it's, it's no surprise to anyone that when you look at a lot of the leadership of these firms on their websites, you don't see a lot of women. And even with the podcast, we've been trying to make an effort to try to have both male and female on the podcast to get different perspectives, but someone who's very super active in your industry and done different things like you've explained, I'm just curious about the female perspective on things. If you read ASE notes or ASE news, I was in there probably in February or March talking about what it's like being a female or woman in engineering. And I don't want to sugarcoat it and say everything is great, but I do want to say it's getting better. It's not like it used to be. And I think that a lot of companies are really uh, taking a step back and saying, how do we 
keep women? How do we attract women? How do we keep them? The Mississippi section board was uh, board of directors was meeting earlier this week, and there's two females on the board. And we were kind of actually joking that if you want to get anything done, just give it to a woman, like it'll get done. We were kind of joking about that, but I think that there's truth to that. As women, we in engineering, we kind of feel like, or at least I feel like, I have to work so hard. And it's a perception, I understand that, but I feel like I have to work so much harder than my male colleagues to get the same recognition. And so we're just kind of used to it. We're just kind of used to getting stuff done and checking the boxes and not really getting recognition for it. And that's changing slowly and it's getting better, but it does lead to a problem that I have, which is work-life balance. I think if you asked my husband, he would definitely say, oh, Jennifer works all the time. She doesn't know when to stop. In fact, the other day he was like, I really hate cleaning the house with you because you start on one end and you don't stop until it's done. He's like, you know, I need a break every once in a while. It's one of the problems that I have. There are other women, if you were to talk to them, they would have a different take on it. I was going to ask you that because I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of women really like hustling and working super hard because they feel like they want it, they need to, to get that recognition. And it sounds like some of the other women you've talked to there have the same sentiments. I was just going to ask you if you thought it was a pretty common theme or is it just the fact that you're kind of a really hard, intensive worker? I know you are, so... But it sounds like in talking with other women that you get that same sense. At least in this area, I do get that sense. Even when I interact a lot with student groups, and even with the student groups, I still get that. There are three engineering universities in the state of Mississippi, and one of the the actual, the largest engineering college in state, their student ASCE chapter, their board is all women and one male. And I look at them and I see myself when I was in college and, you know, they're hustling, they're planning events and they're, they're, you know, so involved. And I'm not saying the young men are not as well, but it's just interesting that basically one entire board out of three is women, which is interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm glad you gave us your take on it because it's just always been of interest to me. I mean, partly, obviously my wife is a, a civil engineer, so we have those types of conversations But also just in speaking with so many engineers, it's always something that I think is important. And I think it's important to recognize because we probably do have a lot of listeners that are women, that are younger. And if someone like you who's had some experience can give them some insight, I think it's always helpful. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to ask Jennifer to stick around with us for a minute. We're going to come back, pepper her with a few last questions in the hot seat segment and wrap this up. So hang on. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for my favorite part of these episodes, which is the civil engineering hot seat segment where we're going to pepper Jennifer with a few last professional development questions. But before we do that, I do want to once again recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you've been thinking of getting your civil PE license, but you're unsure of where to start, now is the perfect time to check out PPI2Pass.com. PPI has helped over 4 million engineers pass their licensure exam and become leaders in their fields. Best of all, PPI has exam prep material to prepare you for any civil PE discipline, including construction, transportation, structural, and others. Visit PPI2Pass.com to order your exam prep materials and take one step closer to advancing your career. That's PPI2Pass.com. I also have a 20% off promo code available to listeners of this podcast. 
Use promo code TCE8 on PPI's website for an exclusive 20% discount. Again, that's TCE stands for the civil engineer and the number eight. We are back with Jennifer Sloan Ziegler. We talked a lot about policy in this episode. Jennifer has given us some great insights, but now we want to talk a little bit more about her professional development through our civil engineering hot seat segment. Jennifer, you ready for some questions? Go ahead. All right. First question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime ritual? Things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being a successful professional? So I get up every morning about 4 a.m. and I work out from 5 until 6 most of the time. And I'm in the office around 6.30. The first thing I do is I get on my email and I read Politico. I read CNN Five Things and I read The Skim. So they're all different sources of news. And then if I feel like I need some more news, I go to Google News and I read the headlines. That's the very first thing that I do every morning. You lost me at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I lose a lot of people at 4 a.m. I'm a morning person. I'm not a night person. So I'm a morning person too. Believe me, I get like more work done before 7.30 in the morning. I think that most people get done in their day, but I get out of bed at 5 a.m., but 4 a.m. is, that's serious. I thought you were going to tell me you host a morning radio show before you go to work or something. <laughs> no, no, no. And then one of the things that I do is when I'm done for the day, I'm done for the day. I'm always available to my clients if there's an emergency, but when I leave the office, I try to put it aside to give myself personal space. All right. Next question. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you have found to be extremely helpful in your professional or personal development? I read a lot. I read every night before I go to bed. I like mysteries. That's not helpful. Actually, your book is fantastic. I carry it around and I, I always recommend your book to my student groups. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That wasn't planned, by the way. Just for and you didn't listening. pay me to say that either. <laughs> <laughs> but what you also said before about like mysteries and stuff, I, I always tell people I think it's important to read fiction as well. And I do that in the evenings to kind of decompress a bit because I know for someone, I think you and I are similar in that we're fast-paced people and we're trying to do a lot of things throughout the course of the day, getting up early, that at night it helps me to just slow my brain down more or less. So I think that might be generally a good recommendation, maybe even better than a specific book. Two questions left. Next question, thinking back on your career, thinking of the different managers that you've had, and I'm not asking you to come up with a specific name, but if you were to highlight maybe your most effective manager or one of your favorite managers, what makes he or she your favorite? What are the characteristics that make them your best manager you've ever had? I have a person in mind. And he's my favorite for multiple reasons. The first is he would allow me to fail, not with the client and not permanently, but he would allow me to learn from my mistakes. He would not be that you know helicopter parent that would always prevent me from making mistakes. He would let me make mistakes and then he would let me learn and coach me through them, which I think is important. He values personal time which is something that I did not do very well in my early career that I'm doing now. Having personal time and family time is extremely important. And he was not a micromanager. Obviously, I don't still work for him. He lets you work. He lets you try things. He lets you do things kind of on your own in the beginning. Right. And let me figure out what worked best for me. 
so when I taught, I used to tell my students, you know, here's a problem. I'm going to show you three different ways to work it. But honestly, you can work it any way that makes sense to you as, as long as it has a sound basis. And he would let me do that. He wouldn't say, you have to do it this way, which is great. That's actually a question we added to the hot seat segment just a, a couple of episodes ago because we're doing a little more research into what makes really effective managers. And it, it's great to hear people think back and reflect on the managers that they really remember. And that's actually one that we've heard a few times already is that you have a little bit of a leash to try things and to maybe get something wrong. And then you can figure out how to fix it. And you know you won't make that same mistake again. All right, Jennifer, I've got one final question that we call the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that very short period of time, what would it be? Learn how to effectively communicate with people that are not engineers through writing and speaking and get involved in policy, stay involved in policy and just do your best. Know what you know and know what you don't know and don't be afraid to ask. That's great. And that's a perfect place for us to end up. Once again, Jennifer Sloan Ziegler, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. I think we all know at this point how busy you are, and we appreciate that you've taken the time to share some of your experiences with us. Of course. And I do actually want to really quick, I realized that earlier in the podcast, I said that permeable soil does not let water through. That's wrong. I'm sorry, geotechs. It's, <laughs> Let's clarify that. I just that. want to clarify that. Yeah. I do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you see that? But that's what a good engineer is all about. You rec- Like you said, you recognize any mistakes you made and you clarify them and you bring them to the table, right? Yeah, so true. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, Jennifer, thank you. You really gave us some good advice here. And again, remember some of these key takeaways that we talked about, like this idea of would a kindergartner understand what you're trying to explain? I think that's a huge takeaway that Jennifer really helped to kind of get through to us here. And then even some of these last points here about staying involved with policy and remember that you have to take action. You can't just complain about things if you're not taking action. You should take action and try to make some change. So thanks, Jennifer, so much. Thanks, Anthony. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Jennifer as much as I did. She's really great. And when I got to meet her, it was really evident that she has a ton of energy and she's very passionate about what she does. And she's very interested in policy. And I think that those are the kind of civil engineers that we need right now. Passionate civil engineers really interested in policy because that is where we can really, really make some progress with everything that we're working on on a daily basis. So thanks again to her for coming on. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 102. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And also remember, as I said, if you're thinking about attending training, you can check out our Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop at engineer2manager.com. That's engineer2manager.com. And if you are someone thinking about building successful professional development programs for your engineers focused on engineering management, skills around people skills. I mean, people skills are just huge these days. We build custom training programs and believe it or not, they're probably as affordable, if not more affordable and have a higher return on investment than typical CAN trainings. So please reach out to me at afasano at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org or at 201-857-2384 to understand how we assess your staff and then build the program that works for them and ultimately for you as well. 
Again, hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, I wish you all of the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.